it. Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 9 and verse 22. You can find this on page 288 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Uh, Last week we kind of left on a cliffhanger uh, because um, we had the situation where this uh, one of the sons of Gideon had arisen and killed all of his brothers. He conspired with the people of Shechem uh, to make himself the king. Uh, He killed his 70 brothers and then announced that he was king. But there was one brother that survived. And we ended last week with that brother Jotham uh, on the hills of Mount Gerizim overlooking Shechem, uh, telling them, warning them. He told them a little fable about the trees and warning them that if they were not keeping faith with God and with God's appointed deliverer, uh, that uh, things were not going to go well for them. And so now we pick up and we'll read uh, from verse 22 to the end of the chapter and see how this whole situation is resolved. Let's give attention then to God's word. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told Abimelech, Now Gaal, the son of Abed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry, and they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, the son of Abed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Abed, his anger was aroused, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, take note, Gaal, the son of Abed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaal, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. So Gaal spoke again and said, See, people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. 
So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from them, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt in Erumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. And he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berit. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from a tree and took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed uh, Abimelech, put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. And then Abimelech went to Th- Thebes and he encamped against Thebes and took it. And there was a strong tower in the city and all the men and the women and all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it. And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, They departed, every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless this passage to to us as we consider it together. Well, in a few days, uh, the Ship family is going to be leaving for some extended time in the UK, and uh, maybe they'll talk to us about that at the prayer time in the second service. And uh, we we know one of the families that they're going to be staying with when they're in uh, Northern Ireland, a family that's uh, one of the elders of the Ballyclabber Reformed Presbyterian Church where I've served before. And uh, this family had a very difficult situation happen uh, to them about a year and a half ago as the husband left uh, the farmhouse to go into the church for church meetings. And uh, after he was gone and the wife and the four young kids were at home, uh, three men in masks broke down the front door and came in with uh, baseball bats, maybe a tire iron, and uh, were, were after something very specific Uh, that they thought was in the house. And so with threatening and uh, intimidation, they got the wife to uh, open the safe and give them what they were looking for. Uh, Now, thankfully, they left and no one was injured. 
but it was a, a terrifying experience uh, for the whole family. And of course, um, you know, even when we were there last uh, summer, this was fairly fresh still, uh, very hard to be comfortable even in your own home. And when somebody takes away your peace of mind, it's, it's really hard to get that back. And the police came, they called the police, and they got all the information, and the police sort of said, uh, okay, uh, we'll look into this, but uh, uh, don't count on us ever finding uh, who did this. And so you just, you just have to live with it. And sadly, this is the way it often is in our world, that uh, justice uh, seems elusive, like it's not going to happen. It's definitely needed, uh, but it's not going to happen. And that can oftentimes challenge us uh, to ask ourselves, where is God and what is God doing? And uh, in this passage that we have before us, I think we have such a situation. And where we left off last week with these 70 sons of Gideon, uh, called Jerubal in the passage as we read it, had been murdered. And uh, this group had turned uh, to Abimelech as their leader. Uh, the situation looked hopeless indeed. And yet we see as we read how the story ends that God, in fact, was at work. And God's justice comes perfectly and at the right time. And this is a reminder that that is always the case, uh, that God's justice will come perfectly and at the right time, and uh, that causes us then to rejoice that we have a God who does love truth and justice and who brings his perfect justice, but it also reminds you to rejoice even more that you are a recipient of his grace and not merely his justice. And children, if you're going to draw a picture for me this morning, you could draw this man Abimelech, and uh, I think you did a great job drawing Jotham for me last week. Now, this is Abimelech maybe with a torch in his hand, but then uh, please draw for me how it all ends for Abimelech. And uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Well, there's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first thing I want us to notice is that when it looks like evil is going to succeed, you need to remember that God is always at work. So this is a, a longer passage, obviously, but there is a very clear structure to it. It's like a sandwich, and uh, in the middle, uh, the meat or the peanut butter and jelly for whatever your preference is, the middle of the sandwich is the story of what happens in verses uh, 24 to 55. It's a story of double crossing, violence, destruction, and God isn't mentioned at all in that central part of the story. The narrative doesn't mention God. Nobody calls on God. God seems to be absent, and, and so that's sort of the surface picture we get. Where is God? In fact, the beginning of the text tells us that this situation with this totally worthless uh, murderer as their king uh, goes on for three years. And uh, there's no record that anyone's crying out for God's help. There's no record of God raising up a deliverer. And in terms of thinking of this uh, as a battle between Baal, the idol that's worshipped by the pagan peoples in this area, and Yahweh, it looks like Yahweh's been totally defeated. Yahweh's a servant, uh, Gideon, the other name Jerubbaal means the Baal fighter. The Baal fighter's been destroyed. All of his offspring have been destroyed. And so it looks like Baal has won and Yahweh has lost. But you see, the, the narrator here does something uh, very specific to show us. It looks like God has lost and God's not around. 
And yet, the bread of the sandwich, what's on both sides, are the narrator's comments about what it all means. And in those comments, we see that God is very much active and involved. So in verse 23, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. We could explain all this double dealing and double crossing that goes on as just humans doing what humans do. And yet the text tells us God is the one behind that. And then if you go to the other end of the text, at at the end of the chapter, it also reminds us this is God's doing. Verse 56, thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers, and all the evil of the men of Shechem. God returned on their own heads. All of this that we're reading, as graphic and violent as it is, is the work of God achieving justice. Commentator Barry Webb says, evil appeared to be running rampant in Judges 9, but the truth is that God is sovereignly directing it to a quite particular and just outcome. And that's really helpful for us to remember. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't get to read as much fiction as I would like. Maybe if I can get a couple books in a year, uh, that's great. And so uh, uh, I was reading one uh, last year that came highly recommended. And um, I'm reading it. Okay, it had a couple funny parts, but as I read it, I, it was a slog, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm getting to the end. Of like it was, it was work to get this book finished. And, and I realized at the end of the book, the reason was because there was nobody in the book to root for. The, the, and the main character, certainly, but everyone was obnoxious and self-focused. Uh, and, and it was painful to read a book where there's really no one to cheer for. And you are given such a story here. Who are you going to root for? The men of Shechem? or Abimelech. And the point is, neither one is worth rooting for. Now, when this happens in literature, right, it's some kind of a nihilistic message about, you know, the meaningless of life or whatever. Like, but in the Bible, it's meant to direct, to direct your attention to the unseen hand that's working behind all this. And so that actually we would, we would see God is at work, even when it is darkest. And this is very helpful for us because if we look around in our own lives and in our culture, we see a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty. We say, where is God? Why doesn't God respond? And we have to be reminded, God is at work, subtly sometimes, but always behind the scenes. And secondly, we see here that God pursues his perfect justice and displays his awesome power. So um, we have to remind ourselves here, although the men of Shechem conspired with Abimelech to kill all of Gideon's other children, um, the main sin, that's not their primary sin, the primary problem is that they've turned away from worshiping Yahweh and they are worshiping Baal. Uh, the God of that area. And that's what's behind. That's, that's the ultimate sin that they're guilty of. They've rejected Yahweh. They've rejected his, uh, his Baal-fighting uh, family that he had raised up. And so what we see here is how God's perfect justice comes to those who have rejected him. And it comes in a powerful way. God uses their natural inclinations, though, to precisely administer a very fitting justice. Again, quoting from Barry Webb, this is a story of divine judgment carried out with almost mathematical precision. 
And if you, if, you, if you look through the number of things that he just brings exactly what you did, he just brings it right back on your head. And, he, and, and that's very clear in the narrative. So we'll quickly run through in verses 23 to 49 uh, what happens to Shechem. So it tells us that uh, the men of Shechem, they, they become tired of their bramble thornbush king Abimelech. And, um, and so it says there's an ill will between them. And they fear that they might be blamed uh, for the blood that Abimelech shed. And so they've decided they're going to undermine Abimelech. So it says that they set ambush against him. The word ambush is used here or lie in wait a number of times. Right? This is a military strategy based on deception. You're drawing out the enemy and then trying to uh, surprise them. Uh, so they're setting ambushes. So uh, they're probably trying to get Abimelech, but why not? This is on a, Shechem is on a trade route. Why not uh, rob anyone you can? And by doing that, they're undermining uh, Abimelech's uh, leadership in this area. He can't enforce the peace. They're taking away the tolls that he might have exacted. Now, one of the motivations for this, we're told about in verse 26, is probably the appearance of this other uh, soldier of fortune named Gaal. So he comes in with his brothers. Uh, He says, why are you serving Abimelech? Abimelech's just a descendant of Gideon. He's not even one of your relatives. Remember, Abimelech's related to them through his mother's side, not his father's side. Gaal here claims uh, a more pure lineage to the people of Shechem, and so says, why don't you have me as your king? And uh, they seem to like that idea. Now, Zebul, that's the, the character that Abimelech has left in charge of Shechem, gets word of this, and so he sends message uh, out to Abimelech and says, listen what Gaal is doing, undermining you in the city. Here's what you do. Come and make a sneak attack at dawn against them. And so it tells us in verse 34 and following that his people uh, snuck in at night, they laid in wait, and then at dawn they start coming out. And as, uh, as uh, Gaal looks and sees them coming down, uh, Zebul says, no, 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 it's just the light hitting the, uh, the hillside. That's not an attack at all until it's till too late. And then when it's obvious that there are soldiers there, he taunts them and says, uh, go out and fight and do what you can. And so he does. And uh, we're told here that Gaal is defeated. His men are chased away. Uh, eventually they retreat to the city and, uh, and Zebul chases them out. And so it seems like uh, that's a fitting end. You know, we've wrapped up this little story, but that's not the end. And in verse 42, we're told when the people come out, thinking this little kerfuffle is all over, um, there's Abimelech coming to slaughter the people of Shechem. And uh, he takes the city, he puts them to death. It says they retreat to the tower, the stronghold. And as they're in the tower, uh, looking for refuge, that tower is also called the, 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 the place of the El Barit, that this, this is the temple. And so there they are in the temple, and um, Abimelech grabs wood and sets it on fire and kills, it tells us, a thousand, um, a thousand women and men who are all dead. And then he sows it with salt, and uh, that's a sign of perpetual desolation that is supposed to be on this city. And in fact, the city wasn't rebuilt for about 250 years uh, after that. Uh, So the end result is that these people have, who picked this man to be their king, 
have all died. And they've died in the temple to the false god. And just as all those sons of Gideon had been sacrificed probably to Baal, uh, they in essence die uh, in the tower as sort of a burnt offering to their false god. As Arthur Kundal says, self-seeking opportunists and those capable of treacherous murder never make easy companions. And uh, this we have to see is the power at God of God at work. He's never mentioned. And yet what a fitting uh, result happens here. And one of the signs of God's great power is that your own bad plans often boomerang back and hit you. And, and that's actually God at work. Uh, Psalm 9, verse 16, we sang the first part of Psalm 9 earlier. We'll sing the latter part after the sermon. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And so God makes use of these people to bring about his desired result. Um, Historians say Adolf Hitler would never have been able to accomplish what he did if he didn't have the support of at least a sizable amount of the German people. And the end result was millions of deaths and the destruction of that country. And the East German part of it kept under Soviet rule for almost 50 years. Uh, it, It was a severe punishment but fitting for what had been done to other people. And and this is a warning to you. If you think you can harbor a sin in your life and God doesn't know it or isn't going to do anything about it, God, God is going to pursue his justice. It's also an encouragement, though, because if you've been the victim of an injustice, there is a reminder here that God pursues his justice and does it perfectly. Thirdly, we see here that in fact, God always executes his justice right on time. So it seems like this story should be over, except we really haven't found out what's gonna happen to Abimelech himself. And in verse 50, he goes on to attack a second city called Thebes, which is probably a nearby city that was allied with Shechem. And so he believes they're also guilty of uh, undermining his authority and his rule. So he goes and he takes the city. It's a smaller walled city, which also has a tower. And so just like before, the people retreat to the tower for safety. And just like before, Abimelech plans to get wood and set it on fire and burn the people alive. Uh, Only there's a wrinkle in this story. And children, this is what I wanted to make sure we get a good picture of. Uh, A woman drops a millstone. So this would be used for grinding the grain and making flour. And it would be maybe uh, a foot and a half around a circle, a stone two or three inches uh, thick. And so we can say one thing about this nameless woman. She had good aim uh, because Abimelech came close to the tower and the the stone was dropped 
on his head and crushed his, his skull. And in, in, in irony, sort of, he calls out in verse 54 to his armor bearers, you know, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. No offense to you ladies, but for a warrior, uh, this would have been uh, a great humiliation uh, that a nameless housewife used a kitchen implement uh, to kill him. And so he's not worried about his soul, right? He's worried about his reputation. Now, ironically, 150 years later, uh, you, you see in the Bible, Abimelech is uh, uh, synonymous. He's a, he's a proverb for someone being careless near a wall. Uh, so his strategy doesn't work. And he go down, goes down in history as a great uh, humiliating failure and defeat. But again, recognize how precise God's judgment is. Here's the man who killed 70 of his half-brothers, the text tells us, on one stone, right? probably sacrificing them to Baal. And now he is killed with one stone dropped on his head by a woman in Thebes. And God, again, is working his plan with perfect timing. And, and we don't know, right? Does this mean that the people of Thebes were all good people and they didn't deserve to burn up in their tower? Well, we, we don't know that. But what we see is that God's judgment comes uh, with meticulous timing so that God's will was for those people to be saved and that this uh, homicidal maniac who looks invincible Right, is invincible right up until the moment that he's not invincible. And the Lord takes him out of the way. And that's often the way God works, that we may wait long, uh, but God then acts in his timing. And his timing, it turns out in the end, is always perfect. Uh, we were very encouraged. Our friend Samuel, who's a minister in East Asia and having really difficult time in the congregation that he's in. And we just learned that the presbytery came in and is, is set up an opportunity for him to plant a new church. And so the situation that was at a total impasse, it just seemed like there was no solution. And then just boom, the Lord worked out an answer and now he's going to be able to plant a new church. And it's a reminder for us that God often works this way and we need to be patient. God executes his justice right on time. But fourthly, I want us to see here that God's justice on earth is a picture of his ultimate justice in heaven. If you look at verse 57, and all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So Jotham's word, which we read last week, uh, this is why some commentators call him a prophet, because he spoke a word that was fulfilled by the Lord. And his warning to them was, if you do not keep faith with God and God's house, uh, the, the house that God has raised up, Gideon's house, uh, fire is going to come out and burn you. And uh, fire is going to come from you and burn up Abimelech. And in fact, this is exactly what happened. Fire literally came from Abimelech and burned up the people of Shechem. Fire figuratively came out from them back on Abimelech. 
But fire in the Bible is used as a picture of eternal, final judgment. Jesus himself said in Mark 9, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands uh, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. This picture of perpetual burning. Because fire, of course, is one of the most painful things that we can experience. And, um, and the Lord is telling us that the ultimate judgment is worse than anything that we can imagine here on the earth. And the Bible says very clearly that this work is entrusted to Jesus Christ. I put in your outline Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. And here Paul, preaching uh, to the people in Athens, says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's fascinating. So the resurrection of Jesus, it, it proves a lot of things, but Paul here is saying it proves that this man is going to judge the world at the last day, and all of us will have to answer to him. Now we understand uh, God is righteous, and this is why he judges, but the Bible also tells us that he's, uh, he doesn't get some sort of perverse pleasure in this. Uh, this is a part of his righteousness and his anger towards sin. But Ezekiel 33:11 reminds us where God says, "As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel?" There are some things in the Bible that are beyond our comprehension. There are a number of doctrines that are like that. And certainly the doctrine of hell is one of those doctrines. A place of no light, of nothing good. A place where people are perpetually decaying, becoming less and less human. Away from everything that makes life worth living and enjoyable. And it's very unpleasant to think about or to talk about. And yet it's not loving to lie to people and tell them that hell isn't real. It's not loving to lie to people and say you don't have anything to worry about if that's not the case. The, the text points us in this direction through this imagery of fire. Whatever happened here with millstones falling on people's heads and people getting burnt alive in their idol tower, it's nothing like eternal judgment. And the Bible's very clear. Justice doesn't always happen on earth. Sometimes the criminal gets away with it. That's a reality we have to live with. But in eternity, no one ever gets away with anything. Every sin punished to its fullness. 
And that, and that is, a, again, a terrifying but important reminder. It's terrifying if we are not in Jesus Christ. But what a relief for those of us who have suffered some injustice and it's never been made right. In our Sunday school class, uh, we were told about a man who lost um, his family to a drunk driver. And how do you manage to forgive? How do you let go? How do you handle when these evil things are done? We take solace in knowing that every evil will be dealt with by the Lord. And so this is a picture pointing us to the eternal realities. But finally, we are told by this passage that we need to rejoice that instead of receiving God's justice, we have been recipients of his mercy in Jesus Christ. So although this is very sobering, there is cause for celebration in this passage. You see in verse 55, after Abimelech is killed, it says, the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead. They departed every man to his place. Uh, one commentator said these are like walking zombies, uh, waking up. What, what just happened? Um, but God has taken away this oppressive leader. Ralph Davis, writing about this, says, God destroys the destroyers of his people. The rulers of this age have never learned that whoever touches the flock of Yahweh touches the apple of his eye and therefore places himself under God's sword or millstone. Uh, this, is, this is cause for the church to rejoice. Gordon Ketty then speaking of this, and uh, this is fitting given that Gordon was just uh, laid to rest this last week. True justice fundamentally is retributive. The penalty is paid. That is the way it will be in the great judgment when Christ returns. All unpaid accounts will be met in full. And so this is where we really need to pause because in the book of Judges, so far we've seen God deliver unworthy people again and again and again. And this story seems to be a lot more about God giving unworthy people exactly what they deserve. And it's a reminder to you and me that that is what we deserve also. But we should rejoice that God does not give us what we deserve. And if you're trying to place yourself in this story, who are you in this story? You're, you and I are most likely the citizens of Shechem, the ones who have attempted uh, to make a deal with some other king uh, to enrich ourselves, and it all backfires on us. Because that's what Baal worship really was about. It was embracing the local culture's approach to prosperity. That's all it was. You could have Yahweh off on the side, but fundamentally, you were going to seek prosperity the way the pagans around you did, what your culture told you to do. And that's the same thing that we're dealing with all the time. We're all Baal worshipers by nature that's our bent. We're opportunists. How can we make ourselves better? And the amazing thing is that God doesn't throw a millstone on your head. He doesn't burn you up with fire. He sends his son. And his son 
is burnt with fire. His son is the one who takes the burning of hell for his people. He is the one who takes the humiliation of having a millstone dropped on his head and crushed. What else is death by crucifixion other than the most humiliating, degradating, uh, degrading way to die possible? And that's what Jesus experiences so that every sin is paid for in full. And so that people like you and me, natural Baal worshipers, can be forgiven, can be saved, uh, can, can find refuge and healing and forgiveness. So yes, we need to rejoice that God's justice is always at work, that it's perfect, that it arrives just on time. But we need to rejoice even more that God's justice has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that you, if you're trusting in Jesus, can be a recipient of his grace and you can know his salvation. So rejoice in his justice, but rejoice even more that you're a recipient of his grace through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your incredible goodness to your people. In this story, with all of its twists and turns and its violent outcomes, we see your hand bringing about a just resolution to the evil that had been done. And Lord, we are reminded that this is what we all deserve. We are not uh, your servants. We do not love you by nature. And yet, by your grace, you have punished the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. He is the one who has paid in full so that we might be recipients of your grace. And Lord, how we thank you that you are the deliverer of your people. And uh, how, Lord, you continue uh, to work with us and to bring us back and to stay with us despite our weaknesses, despite our failings. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would be resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only true place uh, of, uh, of refuge, and that you would be pleased to work in us and to bless us even in this coming week that we might serve you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And let's then sing back our praise to the Lord, as I said before, from Psalm 9, selection B, the second half of the psalm, which again reminds us that the fact uh, that the Lord uh, brings about a just end, causing a uh, the wicked to perish under their own schemes. That's a sign of his power and his love for his people. So we'll sing Psalm 9, uh, Selection B, and let's just sing uh, stanzas 6 to 8. We'll just sing stanzas 6 to 8 in the music. Let's stand.